Well, good evening. I remember uh, when I was younger, actually that's a relative term, I am younger. When I was much younger than I am now, I uh, remember coming up the stairs on a Sunday morning and seeing my dad reading his Bible at the dining room table and thinking, oh, what a spiritual man. Um, And I remember also uh, those same mornings when I'd see him doing that sometimes, he would say, the pastor called in sick and someone has to preach today. And so he would be getting a sermon ready on Sunday morning because the pastor was sick. And so when I got the call this morning from Adam that uh, the church in Philadelphia needed someone to preach, I thought, hey, I can be like my dad and I can go out and do that if possible. So I appreciate you guys letting me go and do that. And so it also gave me a chance to give this sermon a trial run on another congregation and make sure that no one called out heresy. So, all right, well, we're going to continue our series tonight in the book of Jude. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Jude. And our text for tonight is verses 8 through 15. Uh, I think I told Kathy 8 through 16, but I changed it this week. It's 8 through 15. So Jude verses 8 through 15. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Jude 8 through 15. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves... Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this evening that you, through your Holy Spirit, inspired your servant Jude to write this text for us tonight. Lord, I pray that as we study it, you would accomplish what you want to do through your word, and that we wouldn't be the same when we leave here tonight on account of your work. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to take some dual credit courses at our local state university. And uh, what that means basically is that as a senior in high school, I was able to take college classes at the university. I went there every day to take these classes. 
but they were counted both for college credit and for high school credit. So you were you know, getting two birds with one stone through that deal, and that's what I was doing. So I attended that state university for a year, got a lot of general credits done. Then I went to a two-year Bible college in Minneapolis, and then I finally went to a, a Christian college in South Dakota to finish my undergrad. So to get my undergrad, I was at three different schools and learned a lot from all kinds of different professors. And it was at one of the Christian schools that I was at that there was this one professor that everybody loved. I mean, he was the ideal professor that you'd want to have at a Christian college. I mean, he was, he was a good-looking guy. He was really good with the students. He knew how to talk to them. He would meet with them and have lunch. He was the professor of theology, and so the students would come to him with theological questions on this Christian campus. And uh, he, he was a, a doctor, a, good, a graduate from a really good reform school. He had published some books. I mean, this was a very, very perfect kind of professor that a Christian college would want to have. Uh, but as I was studying there, this is in my junior year, um, there, was, there began to be some concerns about some of the things that he was teaching among the students. They were concerned about it, um, including me. And it began to emerge that there was perhaps some problems with some of the doctrine of this particular professor. And the officials of the school began to investigate this issue. They had officials sitting in on classes to figure out what was going on. And it soon began to emerge that this particular professor was teaching things not only um, against what the officials and the president believed, but what was against the um, official statement of the school itself. And he was teaching against the inerrancy of Scripture in the classes. He was teaching against justification by faith alone and all of these kinds of core essential doctrines that we would want to defend. And so what ended up happening was three weeks into the fall semester, the board of the school got together and fired him. They acted swiftly and, in my judgment, rightly. But the reason why I think they acted rightly in that situation, and as much as a lot of people didn't, because there was a lot of turmoil in the school after that, where a lot of people said, no, you shouldn't have fired him. This is just academics. You know, it doesn't matter if he doesn't agree with you on something. But no, these were essential issues. And what, what the board said was that, you know what? We recognize that the scriptures puts a profound emphasis on false teaching. And not only does the scripture warn us greatly about false teaching, but like in our passage tonight, it warns us specifically about false teachers. And that is really the theme of what Jude is trying to persuade his recipients of in these verses here. What we're going to see in this text as we begin to work through it tonight is that Jude is presenting to us three things about false teachers. Now, firstly... About the false teachers, he's going to tell us some red flags about how to identify false teachers. What are they doing? What are these false teachers up to? Secondly, he's going to tell us why the false teachers are doing what they're doing. Why are the false teachers involved in this sin of teaching false things against the gospel? That's what he's going to tell us. And then thirdly, he's going to tell us about the judgment that these false teachers are going to receive. And so that's, that is his order. So firstly, taking a look at verse 8. As Jude tells us about these false teachers, what are these false teachers doing? Particularly among Jude's recipients, but maybe more broadly among all the false teachers. What are, what are things that we can see in false teachers? Verse 8. Yet in like manner, these false teachers also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, 
reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So here we got four things that Jude is identifying as red flags for false teachers, for us to identify false teachers. Firstly, they rely on their dreams. Now, Jude could be saying when he says relying on their dreams that they are relying on visions that they have had or on um, dreams that they've had while they've been asleep and they wake up and say, oh, God revealed something to me while I was sleeping. Or maybe they were having a meal somewhere and they had suddenly a vision telling them where they think that, that God was telling them something about doctrine or something about truth. So he could be saying these kind of dreams. They're relying on those kind of actual dreams. But you know, more broadly, Jude could be saying, well, yes, those dreams. But more broadly, he could be saying that they're relying on things that they have conjured up themselves. That they're relying on teaching that they have thought up within their own minds and that they have then been propounding among the people of God as being authoritative. So in other words, by relying on their dreams, Jude is saying these people are relying on their own authority for this teaching, not on the authority of God's word or on his apostles, etc. So that's one mark of a false teacher that Jude is bringing out for us here. They're relying on themselves. They're relying on their own ideas and their own dreams and perhaps their own claims to special visions from God. That's a red flag among teachers. Secondly, Jude identifies defiling the flesh. It's another thing these false teachers are doing, defiling the flesh. That is a biblical phrase meaning sexual immorality. And sometimes it can mean particularly homosexuality, but uh, more generally sexual immorality. And what Jude is doing here, I think, when he talks about defiling the flesh, is he's saying these people are clearly living a lifestyle that is contrary to the word of God. And as an example of that, he talks about people defiling the flesh. So that's what false teachers are doing according to Jude. They are teaching something, but perhaps living a lifestyle completely different from what they're teaching. Or they're living a lifestyle that is totally different from the teaching of God's word. They're not living in accordance with the word. They're living openly, continual, perpetual, ongoing, sinful lifestyles. That's a red flag among teachers if you see that. That's what Jude is saying. Uh, thirdly, they reject authority. They reject authority. Now, I don't think when Jude says they reject authority, he's talking about rejecting government or rejecting the police or something like that. That kind of authority, the civil magistrate. I think the authority that he's talking about here is the authority of the church and particularly the authority of the apostles. That is that these false teachers that are in the midst of Jude's recipients in their congregation are teaching things that are against the word of God and therefore they are rejecting the authority of the authoritative messengers that Jesus sent, namely the apostles. So they're rejecting legitimate ecclesiastical authority here, particularly the apostles. And then fourthly, the fourth thing Jude identifies for the false teachers is that they are blaspheming the glorious ones. They're blaspheming the glorious ones. Now I have to say, when I first read this text, and the first time I read the book of Jude was several years ago or so, but the first time I read this, I thought that when Jude talks about blaspheming the glorious ones, that he's talking about blaspheming angels. And that could make some sense, I guess, that he's blasphemy angels and calling angels glorious ones. You know, I guess 
I, I could see him saying that. But the thing is, in verse 9, I think it becomes more clear what he means by glorious ones, and we'll get to that in a second. But in the book of 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter talks about blaspheming glorious ones. He uses the same phrase in the Greek. And what Peter means when he talks about blaspheming glorious ones is most definitely not angels. Because Peter contrasts the glorious ones with angels. You can, if you want to take a look at that, you can. That's in 2 Peter. Uh, I don't remember exactly where it's at, but it's in 2 Peter somewhere. Uh, and so, Peter contrasts glorious ones with angels. So, okay, maybe glorious ones, if Jude here means the same thing, maybe they're not angels. Okay, well, what else could they be? What are the glorious ones? Well, let's look at verse 9. I think it becomes sort of clear. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is another interesting verse that I was confused about the first time I read the book of Jude. And perhaps you're sitting here wondering, what on earth is Jude referring to in this text that he's talking about? Or this, this historical account or the story that he's bringing up? What is this? Well, it's not in Deuteronomy. You don't find um, the archangel Michael and the devil fighting over Moses' body in Deuteronomy or anywhere else in the scriptures for that matter. Um, and so there's a couple possibilities here. One is that when Jude talks about this, he's using a fictional story as an illustration to make a point. And we'll talk about what that point is in just a second. Maybe he's using this as an illustration. I, however, think that it's probably more likely that he is actually talking about this event of the Archangel Michael and the devil fighting as a historical event. This is something that actually happened. And it's just the way that he treats it, the way that he quotes other historical events and a few verses later, I think this is a real event that was preserved in Jewish history and in Jewish tradition all the way up until Jude draws from it to make a point here. Okay? But anyway, what's the point? We can, get, we can get bogged down thinking about what this story is all about, but what's the point? Why is Jude using this? Well, he's talking about blaspheming the glorious ones. And then he goes on to say, the false teachers, the bad guys, are blaspheming glorious ones. Guess what? The good guy, the archangel Michael, didn't blaspheme the devil. But he left the devil to the judgment of God. And so what Jude, I think, here means by glorious ones is he's talking about demonic powers. Namely, Satan and the demons. And that makes a little more sense if you're reading this in Greek, because the word glorious in Greek doesn't necessarily always mean heavenly, as we tend to think of it. Glorious can simply mean respected. So they're blaspheming the respected ones, is what the false teachers are doing. Now, why does this matter? Why is this a red flag for false teachers? Well, by blaspheming the demonic powers, Jude is saying that, that the false teachers are disrespecting and not taking seriously the real threat of Satan and his powers and his demons. They're not taking them seriously. Perhaps they're even mocking them, blaspheming them, speaking poorly of them, not taking them seriously. Or perhaps even, if we maybe do a little bit of eisegesis here, look, reading into the text, perhaps Jude is saying that, they are, that these false teachers are teaching that the devil and the demons don't even exist. There's a lot of people today that try to make that case. A lot of Christians Try to say the devil doesn't exist, demons don't exist, that's fictional. And let me tell you something, if you're in a war, 
and the enemy can convince you he doesn't exist, guess who's won the war? <laughs> it's the enemy. It's one of Satan's greatest tactics is to convince people that he doesn't exist. And I think that could be what Jude is referring to here. And he's saying that these false teachers are teaching that the devil and the demons either don't exist or they're no threat. And that is false teaching. That's a red flag, according to Jude, because we do need to take seriously the powers of the enemy. So that is Jude telling us here what these false teachers are doing. These are the four things they're doing. And we'll come back to this when we get to the application for tonight. But in verse 10, Jude moves into his second major section. And that is talking about why the false teachers are doing what they're doing. So we know what they're doing. He's given us some red flags about these people. They're rejecting authority. They're basing everything on their own authority. They're blaspheming the demons. They are defiling the flesh and living sinful lifestyles. Why are they doing this? Why are the false teachers driven to do these sinful things? Well, here we get the answer in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. I love Jude's use of illustrations in this passage. There's a whole bunch of them, and we're going to get to them in just a second. But notice the illustration that Jude is drawing here. He's saying that these false teachers are like animals. And in what way? They're like animals because they're doing the things they're doing instinctively. One of the great mysteries in the animal kingdom, and I don't know how much science that you all have studied or if you're you know, into that kind of thing or not, but one of the great fascinating things in the animal kingdom is, especially the science of the animal kingdom, is trying to understand what animal instinct is. Like you look at animals and they seem to have this, this innate knowledge to do things that they've never learned how to do. I remember um, when we had a, uh, growing up on the farm, we had a dog, a, a wonderful yellow lab, and she gave birth to a whole batch of puppies. There were nine of them. It was awesome. And I was like, you know, 10 at the time. So this was, you know, a joy for a 10-year-old boy to play with all these little puppies. And one of the puppies was way smaller than the other ones, and it was, you know, pretty sickly looking. And what the mother dog would do every day is she would take this sickly little dog and she would drag it off and separate it from the rest of the pack and leave it to die. And I, as a 10-year-old boy, would say, no, that's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. And I would take that dog every day and bring it back to the pack and then the next day it would be gone again because the mother dog done that and I asked my dad about that and he said yeah he said that all dogs do that they're trying to get rid of the weak ones to save all of the nutrients for the um, rest of the puppies that are healthy that's instant that, that all the dogs seem to have this knowledge of how to do that or that they ought to do that and there's all kinds of other things you could point to in nature showing that animals do these things and we don't seem to know why they do them they never learn them they just seem to do it instinctively. They do it by nature. And it's that illustration that Jude is drawing on here to talk about why the false teachers are doing their false teaching. And that is that they do it instinctively. They do it by nature. What Jude is saying is that the reason false teachers are doing what they're doing, the reason why the sinners are sinning, is because... They are depraved in nature. They are simply doing what their nature requires. This is total depravity with a vengeance right here that Jude 
is drawing out for us. They sin by instinct. They false teach by instinct. And then Jude goes on here in verse 11 to tell us some more about why the false teachers are doing what they're doing. That's sort of the theological reason. They sin by instinct. They sin because they are depraved in nature. Then he gives in verse 11 more of a practical reason why they are doing what they're doing. And that's this. Woe to them, verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And you can see Jude is very familiar with the Old Testament. He's just rattling off you know, characters and narratives left and right here. And what, what do these three characters have in common? Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Well, what they have in common is that they all wanted to be something that they are not. They all wanted something that they're not. What did Cain want? Well, he wanted to be able. He wanted God's favor. Balaam wanted to abuse his gift... For the sake of gain. And Korah wanted to lead the Israelites instead of Moses and led a rebellion and some 250 people got killed over it. They, all three of them, wanted something for themselves. They wanted to build themselves up. They wanted to accumulate something for themselves. And ultimately, they were destroyed for it. And that's the historical type that Jude is placing upon the false teachers. The theological reason that they're doing it is because they're depraved. But what's the practical reason is that they want to accumulate for themselves. That's the motivation of false teaching. They want something. Perhaps build up an empire of fame. Perhaps build up an empire of riches. Maybe an empire of fame and riches. Or who knows what else they could want. That's why the false teachers are doing what they're doing. And then, then Jude goes in now in verse 12 into a whole set of analogies and illustrations and metaphors to explain what these false teachers are doing and why they're doing it. I, I love Jude for this. He's, he's a literary master here. Verse 12, these false teachers are hidden reefs at your love feast as they, seek with, or as they feast with you without fear. Hidden reefs at the love feasts. Love feast is kind of a weird term if you're not familiar with what it means. Uh, the, the early Christians used to refer to the Lord's Supper as a love feast. Okay? Uh, sounds weird, but that's what they called it. because of their love for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for them and the supper and, and all that kind of stuff. But what, they're saying, what uh, Jude is saying here is that these false teachers are like hidden reefs at the Lord's Supper. Meaning that these false teachers are here. In your church. And they are partaking of the Lord's Supper with you. Eating and drinking condemnation upon themselves without fear. And they're doing this as hidden reefs. They're doing this as dangerous rocks under the water. Sailors used to be absolutely terrified. Actually, they still are terrified of reefs. These rocks, giant chunks of rock or like land that comes up right underneath the surface of the water. So you can't see it from the surface. But you sure know if you hit it when your ship runs into it and cracks the hull and you all sink and die. Right? That's a very serious thing if your ship hits a reef. And Jude, using this imagery, is saying these people are hidden reefs, partaking of the sacraments with you. They're in your midst. Watch out, because they're hiding just under the surface, and they will sink your ecclesiastical ship. 
I love this illustration. It's so picturesque. That's what these false teachers are. Shepherds feeding themselves. What's the point of a shepherd? A shepherd is supposed to feed the sheep. What do false teachers do? They don't feed the sheep. Well, maybe they do. They feed them poison. But really what the shepherds are doing is feeding themselves, seeking their own gain. This goes back to to Balaam and to Cain and to Korah from before. Their waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Clouds are supposed to promise and bring rain. Trees are supposed to bring fruit. What do the false teachers do? They do not bring any rain and they do not bring any fruit. They're not doing what they look like they're supposed to do on the outside. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. In Hebrew imagery, the sea symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes death and judgment, all kind of wrapped up into one. This is kind of why uh, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation talks about the fact that in the new heavens and new earth there won't be any sea. I don't think he means that literally, that there won't be any water. I think he's saying there won't be any judgment or chaos or death. And here, Judah's drawing on that imagery, I think, to say, look, these false teachers, and they're just waves, chaotic waves, crashing into each other, not accomplishing anything. They're making a lot of noise. They're making a lot of foam. They look powerful, but they're not accomplishing anything. It's ultimately meaningless. And will, in fact, lead to judgment and death. Waves crashing into each other. And then his last analogy here, he says, They are like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't have GPS. (laughs) Hard to believe. They didn't have GPS. Actually, some of you probably lived in the ancient world by that definition. (laughs) GPS is a relatively new thing. I remember when we got a TomTom in our family vehicle when I was growing up. That was high-tech stuff now, and now we've all got them built into our watches these days. But they didn't have GPS or TomTom or any of those kinds of things in the ancient world. They had stars, and they had special equipment and mathematical calculations that they would use to navigate on land or by sea using the stars. And the thing with navigating using the stars is that you have to assume that the stars are fixed. They're not going to move. If you have wandering stars, you can't navigate with them. They are purposeless. They will not accomplish what you think they're going to. And in fact, if you try to navigate using stars that are not fixed and stars that are not moving, you will actually find yourself traveling to a place you did not want to go and that you did not expect. That's exactly what false teachers do. They promise the way, and they don't deliver. And they actually take you to a place you don't want to go. They're wandering stars. All right, and then Jude in verse 14 moves into the judgment upon the false teachers. What's going to happen to these people? And it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's a lot of ungodliness going on in those two verses. 
Now, notice something here. Jude is quoting from Enoch. Raise your hand if you think... I'm sorry, we're Presbyterians. We don't raise our hand. But mentally raise your hand if you recognize the book of Enoch as being something in the Bible. Is that in the Bible? No, it's not. It's not in the Apocrypha either. It's not even in the Roman Catholic Bible. No, the book of Enoch is actually a intertestamental Jewish work. So by that, I mean that it was written, or at least they think it's written, sometime between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So in that 400 years before Jesus was on earth. The book of Enoch was written about that time. It's an apocalyptic book. It's 108 chapters. It's this massive thing. And it's all about judgment on evil and reward for good. And here, Jude, in Scripture, is quoting from this book of Enoch. Just as a, as a sort of an excursus, why would Jude quote from, quote from a non-canonical book? And not only does he quote from it, he says, Enoch prophesies. He quotes from a prophecy in this book. What do we make of that? I'll admit, I didn't know what to make of it at first. But you know what? If you take a look at the rest of Scripture, scripture scriptural authors very frequently quote from other works that are not part of the Bible. You just think about it. In, uh, the Apostle Paul, in Acts 17, he quotes from Greek philosophers. Well, do we then say that Greek philosophers are inspired? I hope not. No, we don't say Greek philosophers are inspired just because Paul quoted from it. Well, why did Paul quote from the Greek philosophers? Well, it's because he saw that there was this line of truth in the philosophers, and he pulled that out and said, hey, all truth is God's truth. This is true. So let's quote it. It's something Augustine teaches quite a bit. There's actually some truth in the pagans. You can find nuggets of truth all over the place. And Jude here, apparently, through the inspiration of the Spirit, was able to see that in the book of Enoch, there was a legitimate prophecy recorded that Enoch, the guy who lived in Genesis chapter 5, had made at some point in history and was preserved throughout Jewish tradition. You can see that's what Jude's doing here in a lot of this epistle, is he is bringing stuff out from Jewish tradition. And he's saying, hey, this is good stuff. Some of it. He's not saying all of it's good. But through the inspiration of the Spirit, he was able to see this prophecy that he quotes from the book of Enoch was actually made by Enoch and is a legitimate prophecy. And not only that, by the way, but if you do cross-referencing, this prophecy, the, the, the parts of it, can be found in other parts of Scripture. In Zechariah and in the book of Daniel, you'll find this same language and these same claims being made um, on the lips of God. But anyway, that's another issue we could get bogged down on. But... Let's look at the point of why Jude is quoting this. He quotes Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and he says, Enoch prophesied, and he said, here's the judgment that is going to come upon false teachers. Not just false teachers, though. God is going to come with ten thousands of his holy ones. He's going to come with a heavenly army of judgment. And he's going to bring judgment upon everyone who has done ungodly deeds. And then in verse 15, he's going to bring judgment upon all ungodly sinners who have spoken in an ungodly way. That's the false teachers. And Jude is saying, look, Enoch, thousands of years ago, prophesied about false teachers. 
general prophecy that covers the realm of false teachers. Scripture is full of teaching condemning false teachers, and Jude, simply through the inspiration of the Spirit, saw Enoch's prophecy as applying to this situation. The judgment that God is going to bring upon those who have acted in an ungodly way and those who have spoken in an ungodly way is going to be massive. It's going to be the heavenly host coming against them. Thousands, tens of thousands of holy ones. This is significant judgment language that we're seeing here. This is no small judgment. This is a big deal. Now, it's pretty heavy, isn't it? It's heavy stuff. At least next time in our text, we're going to look at stuff that isn't quite so heavy. But you know what? It's good to to think about heavy stuff. It's good to think about what Jude is talking about here. There is plenty for us to see in this text that applies to those of us who aren't false teachers. And the first thing that I think that we can see, if, if you want to call this application, that we can see that Jude is teaching us here is how to recognize false teachers, who they are, what they're doing, and why they're doing it. And even just look at verse 8. This is is Jude giving us a step-by-step guide to identifying false teachers. Just look for them. He's saying, look, if you see people claiming to to have truth from God that's coming from visions and dreams and their own ideas that's clearly against the Scriptures, guess what? You can know for a fact they're a false teacher. And how many people today are there that claim to be doing exactly this thing? Right? You've heard of them. You probably see ads for them on Facebook even, if you're on Facebook. Conferences, vision conferences and those sorts of things where everyone gets in a room and they claim to have visions from God, adding to Scripture and so on. That's a clear example of false teaching. And you can go through these lists right here. If you see someone who's living a life totally contrary to God's Word, that's another indication that they're a false teacher. You go through this whole thing. Jude is teaching us how to guard our minds. Who we sit under as our teachers is very, very important in Scripture. And we need to think very carefully about what we do because our minds are precious and they are easily influenced and we need to be thoroughly enrooted in the Word of God so we're not swayed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need to watch for false teachers. And then I think the second thing that, that we can learn from this text is God's people. And, and I know this application point is not technically in the text. So I'm breaking the application sermon rules, but that's okay sometimes, I think. And this point is in the other part of Jude, the beginning. And that is, think about the great judgment that is coming upon the wicked. And think, why is it not coming upon me? Because guess what? It's not just the false teachers that sin by instinct. We all sin by instinct. We all sin by nature. It's not just the false teachers that are worthy of the judgment of ten thousands of God's holy ones coming upon them. It's all of us. And the only reason why we haven't had that judgment come upon us is because that judgment came upon someone else. When 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was incarnated and came to this planet and died on the cross and the whole bowl of God's wrath upon us 
was poured out on Christ. And he took the punishment. He took the judgment that Jude is describing here upon himself for us as his people. We're worthy of that judgment. But it's only by the gospel of Jesus Christ that that judgment hasn't come upon us. Because left to ourselves, we would be just like these false teachers. We'd be doing everything that we're doing, all of our sin, out of our own sinful nature. Praise God for His gospel. Praise God that He has saved us. And we thank God for the work of Jesus. And that that judgment is not coming on us. Now, can we pray and, and thank Him for that now? Let's do that. Our Father and our God, we thank You. We thank You for Your Gospel. Lord, we thank You for this great teaching so clearly found in all of Your Word that each and every one of us is dead in our sin. And we sin by nature. We sin by instinct. And Lord, we, because we sin, are worthy of all the judgment described here in the text that your servant Jude wrote for us. We are worthy of it. But Lord, we thank you that you sent your one and only Son to this planet to take that judgment that we deserved. And that we got his righteousness. And that we've been covered and we are now considered as believers holy and blameless in your sight. Oh Lord, we thank you for this gospel. Lord, we pray that it would change us. We pray that it would strengthen our faith to be reminded of this gospel as your people. And Lord, as your people who have been justified in your sight, give us the wisdom from your word tonight to identify false teachers and to be on guard and on the lookout so that we can protect the minds and the hearts that you've given us. In your holy and precious name and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response tonight is number 310. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Number 310. Please stand.